How you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. My guest today is Rosemary Addisa, founder and former CEO of the Association of Mixed Race Irish, a campaign and support group with members in Britain, Ireland, the US and China. Born in Ireland to a white mother and Ghanaian father, her childhood was a series of foster homes and industrial schools. She has a master's degree in social policy and cares for her daughter and granddaughter in West London. It's a full life story, so we begin with the founding of AMRI, the Association of Mixed Race Irish. At age 55, I, if you like, I recognised that there was something missing in my life and it was simply the fact that I had completely ignored my Irish heritage uh, since I left Ireland. And I went to Sally Moridi and Phyllis Morgan's um, Irish Women Survivors Network. And I met this group, it's like 80 women, um, all a little older than me, some a little younger. And they were talking about institutional abuse. And it occurred to me that actually my story wasn't reflected. And even when Bertie O'Hearn on the steps of um, the door in Ireland, formally apologized to survivors. I didn't feel that apology because I knew that we just weren't part of any narrative. So that's actually what got me going. And I met a couple of ladies there, um, age 55, meeting women, mixed race Irish women from the same background as myself. We met for coffee afterwards. And that's when it was a kind of, yeah, me too, yeah, me too. So the idea formed because I thought, well, the three of us share similar experiences and we were widely dispersed throughout Ireland. What was that about? But if we could share a similar experience, how many others were there? So that's actually, that was the impetus for me starting off at Mixed Race Irish and going forward. After that initial meeting with, with, with a couple of other, other women there, what did you do next? <laughs> um, it was very confusing because I wasn't particularly political, um, but using friends within our new group, we established relationships with key TDs in Ireland. And I was really clear that we needed to have a cross-party support. It couldn't be either Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil, Green Party. Um, it couldn't be just one. It would have to be cross-party support. and Thanks to, um, it was Dominic Hannigan, actually, XTD, who arranged for a cross-party group of TDs to meet with us. And that's actually what started the ball rolling. So we owe an enormous debt to Dominic Hannigan, who was then TD, I don't know which part of Dublin, I don't, I don't know which part of Ireland he was from, but we absolutely need uh, to acknowledge and thank Dominic Hannigan. Um, we met all TDs and I prepared a document which I shared with them and it really was bluntly outlined the kinds of trauma that my community had um, endured while in industrial schools and explained to them why we felt strongly that our story had a history. It is, was part of the survivor narrative and ask them to just support us while we ask the Irish, asked Irish society to just listen to us and just say, you know, there were different 
communities within these industrial schools, modern baby homes, Magdalene laundries, we are here. And we, we would like our story included in the narrative. It's not taking away from any other narrative, but it is about saying, um, yeah, we were there too. And I have the records of the uh, oldest mixed race Irish member um, of Vesper, in fact, from 1902. Now that's before the formation of the Irish state, but she was in Vesper, which was then a workhouse. All these um, institutions were formerly workhouses. And when the Irish government um, became its own state, they simply converted them into industrial schools without the forward thinking that the English were doing. They were basically workhouses. Did you encounter resistance? And I don't just mean institutionalised resi resistance, but also resistance from members of the, 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 the mixed race Irish um, to, to telling their story. Um, not really, if I'm honest, because obviously before I embarked on this course of action, I asked the community, look, this is what I plan to do. Are you up for it? And I got an overwhelming response, yes. So within the mixed race Irish community, within those of us who had any uh, contact within Irish industrial schools, mother and baby homes and magazine laundries, the feeling was, yeah, this is slightly scary, but yes, we too feel that we have been whitewashed out of survivor narratives. So I didn't get that kind of pushback from my own community. And that was, that was uh, critical because had I received any kind of pushback, I'd have dropped it there and then because this has never been about me. And what about from the Irish institutions themselves? No, they don't talk to survivors. They, they don't. They have never even apologised to survivors. You had the Ryan Report of 19, of, of sort of um, 20 years ago, um, and they've never responded. They, they insist on maintaining a Catholic response to all kinds of criticism, which is, it doesn't exist, it's not there. I reached out to them, I never got a response. They just won't engage. And I think that's going to bite them in the future because they have an important role in the healing of survivors, many of whom are deeply religious. But their refusal to engage with what was and still remains a deep hurt for the survivor community is at the very least unchristian. Um, also, I'd suggest that it is it simply demonstrates that the Catholic Church in Ireland has always been about protecting the institution, the Catholic Church, it has a lot less to do with the welfare of its flock and much more to do with the reputation of their institution, which frankly right now is in shreds. So I think this is a really bad move on their part. So yeah, nada, there's a response. <laughs> Do you think that the fact that you were uh, based in England rather than in Ireland made your job any easier? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I maintain that we couldn't have started off mixed race Irish and then the Association of Mixed Race Irish had we been in Ireland. We just couldn't have. And actually, it's not just about location. 
it's about distance. I've spent most of my life in the United Kingdom and I had reached a level of psychological distance from Ireland, which has enabled me to think uh, more objectively about the issues going on in Ireland. And it also meant that um, I, I felt safe in the United Kingdom, as opposed to being in Ireland, where even six, seven years ago, and the church still has a massive hold in our society, but I think it's much more to do with my psychological development in the 40 plus years that I've been in Ireland. It wouldn't have happened in, in it wouldn't have happened in Ireland. It could only have happened within the diaspora, within the United Kingdom. And let's not forget that for many people within the United Kingdom and in America and across the globe, we fled Ireland for various reasons. You know, so we fled because of a hurt that our society imposed upon us. And it wasn't always about uh, being in institutions. It had a lot had to do with unemployment, poverty. And Ireland has always had a national historic core, which is to export its unwanted, predominantly to the UK. So no, it could only have happened in, in the UK. When you say that there's a whitewashing, and I, I, I refer back to the um, the, the interview you, you did um, with, I think it was the Irish Times um, about five or so years ago, and, and, and you talk about um, there's there are many who still want us and the racism to be airbrushed away. Do you think that's still true? No, I think what's been amazing has been uh, an understanding by um, Irish society that actually, given the horrors that Irish society have had to confront, is it that impossible that there would be this tiny minority who would also have had their own story? Um, and I have found a welcome and an acceptance by the survivor community because they know if it happened to them, what is so outrageous about our claim that it happened to us? Plus, many of us knew us. They saw us in these institutions. They saw us in Magdalene Laundries. They saw us in mother and baby homes. We were there. It's just that nobody told our particular story. And I think that the important bit was for us to step up and say, we're here, we're here. So no, um, I consider that as a community, we've been blessed by a welcome, not just within the survivor community, but within Irish society more generally. There's been much more in the way of acknowledgement, recognition and, and discussion of the history of the, of the mixed race Irish in the last few years than we, we've ever seen before. Do you think there's a turning point there or do you think there's a kind of gradual thing? It's got to be gradual. You know, when you consider that the Ireland was a theocracy in all but name for its first 90 years of embryonic formation, I think that we start again. There is that bit, but what's actually really, really exciting and important is the number of younger mixed race Irish without my kind of baggage. They don't have my kind of baggage. They are Irish men and women who happen to have mixed ethnicity or multiple ethnicities. They don't have the kind of baggage. And they're also saying, hey, we're Irish. 
we're Irish. So it's, it is gradual because that is the nature of an insular um, society. And Ireland has been very insular. And I think there's a gradual awareness that actually uh, we need to get on board with certain um, changes in, in Irish society. So for example, the marriage referendum a couple of years ago, I mean, that was so exciting. The uh, repeal of Article 8 in the Constitution, really, really exciting. So in the grand scheme of things, Doug, we're a minor. We're a minor. Plus, there are so many of us in Ireland. I mean, let's not forget, 17% of the Irish population was born outside of Ireland. So I don't think, I think it's, I think it's gradual, but I think that absolutely the baton has to pass to the younger generation who don't have the kind of baggage of my generation. And they are wonderful, they're bright, they are in every sphere of Irish society, from the bin man to the barrister to the likes of Miss Hazel Chu, Lord Mayor of Dublin. I mean, she's amazing, but she's been accepted. I noticed like the racism she's had to deal with. And you have um, a na the national um, uh, uh, newspaper, The Independent, coming out and saying this is unacceptable. That's the way to go. And that that bit has appeared really rapid in the last year. That bit has appeared really rapid. At times it's felt like a drip, drip. Is anyone going to listen to us? Drip, drip. But you've now got newspapers like the Irish Examiner, the Irish Times, the Journal, uh, Irish Independent, and they're all slowly recognizing that we're no threat. We're not taking people's jobs. We want to be part of Irish society. We are very proud of our Irish heritage. What is the problem? You know, so we are being embraced dogs. I know that's really long-winded. Such a big question. <laughs>You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Rosemary Addiser has talked about her childhood in detail with the Irish Times, and you can find a link to her interview with them on our website, www.plasticpodcasts.com. But I wanted to talk about her arrival in Britain at the age of 20. Um, <laughs> uh, it wasn't as scary as a lot of people might think because the Rotheries had prepared me for this. It was still scary. I remember arriving at Heathrow Airport because not for me the boat, yours truly, ever the snob, was going to go on a plane. It was my first airplane flight. I know, Doug, I know, I'm such a snob. And it took me two hours to find my way out of Heathrow. I'd never traveled outside Ireland. And I remembered um, having a fistful of tuppenny pieces because they were in circulation, getting to a phone, a phone box and phoning Catholic hostels. And there were a lot of Catholic hostels which took in the immigrant Irish. And I found one in Victoria and I took myself and what would be considered an overnight travel bag which contained my entire worldly possessions to the hostel, and that's how I started. Um, 
it wasn't about fear. It was about, um, I've made a decision to leave Ireland. I have no clue about where I'm going, but I am going. And I'm incredibly grateful to the religious for having those hostels. I sometimes think, though, you know, dismantling those hostels has been has had a major impact on homelessness today. Because in those days, you could rent a room, um, you got a breakfast and an evening meal. They didn't allow you to stay indoors. You had to get out there. You had to be working. But that was a really, really good discipline. Uh, so yeah, I'm just I'm just grateful. But that's actually how I started my life in the UK. I knew nobody. It was Jesus, I was so green. God almighty, I was so green. But I think um I also had an innocence. I also had an innocence. I didn't think people were unkind or cruel. And that absolutely saved me in years to come. One of the things about being um um an immigrant or as the Irish love to call it, undocumented, they don't call they don't call the Irish in the United States um, immigrants, like illegal immigrants. They use the term undocumented. The English use the term expat. I wasn't either. But I think one of the things you most miss is the idea that when you're back home, there's always a plate of food for you and a crotchety old sofa for you to lie on if you're homeless. It's just there. You know enough people that even if you're very hard on your luck, the Irish welcome is such. They might not welcome you, but they're going to go, yeah. They'll shove a bowl of soup, bit of bread, and there's a settee. We'll give you two nights. Get on with it. You don't have that when you leave Ireland. And I think that's the bit I found the most disturbing. I understood very acutely that whatever happened to me was entirely my responsibility. That's the, an immigrant talking. So what was the first job you got? The first job I got was in um, an international company, actually, that was in uh, Mayfair. It was called Thomas Tilling, an international company. Gorgeous premises. Now, one of the things, one of the reasons I got the job was because I had trained as a GPO telephonist in Ireland. And um, as a telephonist, you didn't have to see my face. So I was in this room in a back room, fielding uh, phone calls. And in those days, you didn't have the kind of technology, you know, I'm going back to the 70s, 1976, 77. You had the old fashioned switchboard. You're the ones with all the, with all the plugs. Yeah. You had all of those. And I was an expert at that. And I also had um, a soft Irish accent and nobody could tell from my accent that I was black. There was always a case of, you sound different, different, different. Um, 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 I know your accent, I know your accent. And I used to say, I'm Canadian. And they'd go, yeah, that's it, that's it. And we'd move on. That was my first job, actually. That was my first job. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, very nice people. I was very lucky because it was also a time when British companies did not employ black people front of house. They just didn't because, as I experienced in Ireland, we'd scare the customers. Um, so I was very lucky, and I always remembered, um, you know, they had a they had an army of cleaners for this important, prestigious international company. They were all black, and they all arrived with the back entrance. 
I arrived in the front entrance because I was a member of staff. And these ladies noticed me and they would leave me extra biscuits uh, for my tea time. And it was, a, it was a subtle recognition that they understood that I had a position not at the back gate. And I always remembered and valued that. But yeah, Thomas Tilling, Mayfair. The building is still there. It's gorgeous, beautiful, white, colonial building. What was it like? I was just, it was just occurring to me, and we, because we were talking about the, the, the changes that have taken place, say, for example, just in, in, in recognition of mixed race Irish in Ireland itself over the course of a few years. And I think in 1976, 77, it's a completely different land in Britain, particularly with regards to, 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 to immigrants. Totally. I mean, I, you know, people dispute the, the term, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, you know, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Um, Personally, I fulfilled two of the criteria. Um, it was a time of great difficulty. You also had the IRA bombing campaign and there was a tremendous hostility towards the Irish in the UK. I didn't look Irish, so it wasn't directed at me, but it was a very, very scary time to be Irish in the United Kingdom. And I know many an Irish lady who took elocution lessons to try and rid herself of an Irish brogue. And it was necessary because you wouldn't get a job if you had an Irish accent. Life was really, really hard for the Irish in Britain in the 70s. It, it, and like, it's very easy 40 years later to almost dismiss it. But these brave Irish men and women are our forefathers. The Irish today don't have the same level of racism. In fact, they don't have any that entirely integrated as they've done in every society across the world, especially America. But back in the day, to be Irish in Britain was touching. And you could only survive if you moved into a heavily dominated Irish community like Kilburn, which is where I went, by the way. Nobody believed I was Irish, but hey-ho, I was among my people, or Hanwell, there were sort of conclaves of Irish people, and that's where most Irish people went. So Irish people drew their support from each other. You know, they built up their own community, and they are absolutely to be admired for that, because it was incredibly tough being Irish in the UK, in particular in the 70s when the bombing, the IRA bombing campaign, happened on mainline on, on mainland um, UK. But then you also have the, the, the fact that you're black and in, in England um, <laughs> during <laughs> during the 70s, which is the rise of the National Front. And, and let's face it, there's a there's a fair amount of racist jokes going on on TV and things like that. So you, you've got the you, you've got another aspect here. Yes, I mean. I think my my upbringing in, in Ireland prepared me very well for the racism I, I experienced in the UK because I grew up in a very racist island. We might like to think, well, it was just ignorance. It was way more than that. There was an ideology that was attached to any black people. The fact that there were more black people in the UK did not remove that racism. Personally, I was just very well prepared for it. It didn't actually bother me. 
I didn't get upset. I didn't get offended. It was what I already knew. So, yes, but what I do want to point out was that throughout this period, there'd always been, uh, you know, the dispossessed, the dispossessed Irish exported to the UK, hooked up with um, the Afro-Caribbeans who by virtue of their colour were automatically dispossessed. Didn't matter they'd come over on the windrush on the boat. They're already dispossessed. And if you look at, if you listen to a couple of um, documentaries by David Olagusi, and in one episode he talks about the absolute terror the British government had about the Afro-Caribbeans um, diluting the British stock. And there was a, a symbiotic relationship between the dispossessed Irish, the hated Irish, who, by the way, and this is really, really, I always laugh at this, all the uh, stereotypes directed at people of African descent were absolutely tried out on the Irish. So the thick lips, the laziness, the drunkenness, all of that. The Irish got that first. There was a symbiotic relationship. Both of these groups met together. A lot of them moved to Slough, in actual fact, because it's where the factories were. They could build communities there. They also had kids. They also had more kids like me. So there is a really big community of mixed race Irish kids in the UK. They work together to, um, if you like, they work together to forge through anti-racism laws because, and again, a lot of people forget that Irish people were designated a, um, a protected uh, ethnic group on the Irish census. It's still there, by the way, because down to the efforts, if, if you look at the British census, it actually has a signal, it has an entry called Irish. That didn't happen by chance. It happened because the Irish people fought for um, a recognition that they suffered a great deal of racism. No different, well, a little different, wasn't as visible until they opened their mouths, you know. But that's that entry into the UK centers, census is still there. It's one of the reasons that I feel very strongly that we don't have entry into the Irish census. You know, you've got African, you've got Chinese, you've got Asian, you've got traveler, you've got Irish. But my community is listed under other brackets, including mixed race, close brackets. That's just insulting. You know, we're actually othered on the Irish census. And we are the oldest community of African descent in Ireland since the formation of the Irish state. But we don't exist. We also know, in line with Britain, that Britain has the fastest growing demographic in Britain is the mixed race. I know that's also happening in Ireland, but because we don't warrant, we don't deserve an entry into the Irish census, nobody has figures. Nobody has figures. And that to me is a grievous wrong that needs to be rectified for next year's census. We don't exist in Ireland. That just hurts. You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. 
If you're new to the podcasts, or even if you're not, why not subscribe to us? Simply go to our website, www.plasticpodcasts.com, and pop your email in the space provided at the bottom of the homepage. One confirmatory email click later, and you'll be updated every time a new podcast comes out. We'll be back with Rosemary Addiser in a moment. But now it's time for The Plastic Pedestal, where I ask an interviewee to raise up a member of the diaspora of personal or cultural significance. Today it's a double bill, with Tommy McLaughlin and Liam Thompson of the Leeds Irish Centre, with one nomination each. Me, well, <clears throat> mine would be my mother. Bombed out of London in uh, 1940, made the way up to Stoke. Once it got to Stoke, Dad had gone somewhere else. But she uh, she was lucky that she got in with a nice family and fair play to that family that took her in. And uh, she stayed there till I was born just after the Christmas of 1941 there, January 41. And then eventually met up with dad about two or three months later. And then towards the end of 41, they moved into Mexborough, uh, brought up, uh, as I said, me in Mexborough, along with all the, um, the lodges that she had down the pits. Coming into Leeds then in 1954, took a pub here in Leeds, the Garden Gate, a very iconic pub, 10 bedroom type establishment, filled it with lodges again. And unfortunately, just after two years, dad passed. And of course, mother had to give up the, um, she couldn't, they wouldn't let her be the, the landlord, of course, or the landlady of the pub. So she had to give up. And my mother was a widower. She was a widow at 44. And uh, it ended up that just me and mother then were on our own. And uh, as I said, you know, to me then, as I say, she uh, she was so strong and all she wanted was me to do well. And I hope that um, I have uh, approved that. Well, mine, mine would be my mother naturally enough, exactly the same as, as Tommy's. Because like I say, my, my mother came over to, to Leeds when she was 21 years of age. But my mother is, is typical of, of all Irish people that came over here that took that that step onto foreign soil, that, that one step into Liverpool or into Holyhead um, and into the unknown. And, and that's what it was like with, with the people that's, that, that's here now that from, the, from the, the, the time that they've come in, the, the last 200 years of people that's come into the, the city of Leeds, that, that step to the unknown and the, the fact is they proved that the, the, the resilience and the fight that they had got them to where they, they wanted to be, that the, Nothing would defeat them. Nothing was gonna, you know. It didn't matter whether it was a a, a war or, or, or a pandemic that would have stuck with now. Nothing's gonna defeat them. They'll always they'll always come back and be resilient. And that's to me, I'm so proud of 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 everyone, you know, from 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 Sharon's family to to Tommy's family to to my family that that and everyone's family that's come here as, as foreigners and been accepted. That they've accepted accepted into the community. That the assimilated they haven't tried to stand out from from the community and be you know an enclave on their own what they've done is is they've, they've joined in with everything and succeeded and that's what builds builds a community and builds a city and every every place you look in this city there's a there's a brick that's built by an irish person this this building here stands on foundations that every one of the irish community built and makes me so proud and so happy and what we do really does this is a fantastic fantastic community and we should be so proud of everybody that's had anything to do you know everyone it, it, everyone's the most important to me to be perfectly honest everyone 
Tommy McLaughlin and Liam Thompson there. And if you want to hear more of our interview with Leeds Irish Centre, and why wouldn't you, or indeed any of our other interviews, simply go to www.plasticpodcasts.com and go to the episodes page. Alternatively, you can find us at Spotify, Apple Podcast, or on Amazon Music. Now back to our interview with Rosemary Addiser. Rosemary moved into the area of social housing. We talk about what that meant to her, both as a way of helping others and as a way of finding her own voice. I think I was well suited for that because obviously with my background, I understood pain very, very well. I also understood um, the fact that for a lot of times, people fall down on their luck. All they need is one person that looks at them as a human being and just says, you know, I'm not going to do the work for you, but I'm going to help you help yourself. And I took that approach throughout my throughout my career in social housing. And I didn't go into proper social housing, um, you know, collecting rents, that and the other. I went into what's called supported housing. And supported housing was the, the section of social housing that looked after the mentally disabled, the disabled, um, the street homelessness, uh, care leavers, and that was a particular passion of mine. Um, and also outreach to the elderly living in their homes who needed someone to do a bit of shopping. So that's the area I focused my energies in. It was intensely rewarding and I felt I made a difference. Housing associations are incredibly important because they cross boundaries. You know, if you're with a council like Hackney, you deal with social housing issues within that borough. Housing associations, certainly when I was a senior manager for a housing association, I was working with 13 councils. So we had properties from Surrey right through to Slough. And they fulfill a very important role because they form um, a seamless support service across borough boundaries in a way that um, councils cannot. And did, did, you, did, did you find that, like, uh, for want of a better term, your outsider status made it, made it something that you were more drawn to simply because you were, you were helping others who were also seen as kind of outside of? Oh, totally. There's no question about it. I felt like, no, I felt like I found a home. I felt like I found um, an area that I could put my energies into. I felt that I understood the voiceless and I felt that I could help them find a voice I wasn't going to do it for them but I know that I spearheaded the idea of um, you know tenant engagement in policies for the housing association and I, I could I could be quite vociferous on occasion when the perceived wisdom was that we do things for you or we do things to you and my approach was well no these tenants there's nothing wrong with them if anything their mental health it just gives them a different perspective it doesn't mean they're stupid you know they 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 have a voice they're absolutely entitled to feed into the services that affect them on a day-to-day -day level, you know, the, you know, those of us in authority, we can go home, you know, have wine with our partners, 
cuddle our kids. But I was always very conscious of my particular tenants living on their own, struggling with disability, mental health. And the last thing I wanted was to deny them their voice, you know, at the very least. So yeah, it was fun times. Happily, housing associations um, and councils have understood this and is now part and part. I'm not saying I was responsible, not, no, I'm not. But you had enough good people like me with that kind of philosophy, helping to make the change from the ground up rather than, than it being a top-down approach. You know, chief executives on their 120,000 salaries. What do they know of Mary in a one-bedroom flat? Can't really get out of bed at all. What do they know? Helping people find their voice is quite important to you, isn't it? It is. It is, particularly because I didn't have a voice for so many years. And I think sort of working with um, vulnerable tenants for so many years, over three decades, has helped me articulate and find my own voice. So if you like, I found my voice through my clients. For over 30 years, I found my voice through other clients. But at some point, I just thought, you know what, Rosemary? And this is the thing about uh, a lot of people, survivor communities, or a lot of vulnerable people, were very, very good at fighting other people's corner. We're really good at that. But we really struggle to fight our own corner. We really do. So it's, if you like, the, 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 the 35 years of fighting on behalf of vulnerable people has enabled me to think, you know what, Rosemary, maybe you could just, maybe you could open your own throat for a change and, you know, say what you have to say. And it's not always politic, dog. It, it's not. I offend people left, right and centre. I'll be honest. I have offended so many people because my guiding philosophy, dog, is it kind of doesn't matter how I say it as long as I say it. And I want people to understand this. I grew up in an environment which absolutely silenced its hapless, helpless, hopeless victims. The last thing they wanted was a voice. They want us to have our voice. So you grow up actually not being able to ask your own needs. Shit, you don't even know what your own needs are. You know, so we were not granted the social skills dog that millions of people take for granted as part of their everyday um, social upbringing within a loving family. We didn't have that. You know, so as I said, I, I say what I have to say. And people who understand me, who know that I have a good heart, don't get offended. They might say, oh, you know what, Rosemary, that was a bit strong. And I'll go, hmm, yeah, I suppose you're right. Here comes the apology. Seriously, there's not many people I trust. But those that I do trust, um, like Dr. Lucy Michael, uh, and in particular, my family, only they have the right to go, you know what, Rosemary, you're a bit strong there. And I'm going, really? How? <laughs> and they'll tell me. They'll break it down for me. And again, it's got to do with the lack of socialization that 190,000 survivors of Irish institutions uh, learned as part of their socialization. Don't question. 
That was the message. Don't question. Just do. Don't think. Do what I tell you. Think what I tell you. Yeah. And do I sound angry? Yes, I am. Do you find it easy to forgive? I do. I do. And the reason I find it easy for, to forgive is because, number one, I've forgiven myself. Number two, I have a loving family. And I have a couple of really good friends who just accept me as I am. And I think when you have those kind of variables, it's very easy to forgive. I, you know, I'm also able to reflect. I'm able to reflect and understand that things were different. Things are always changing. Society is always changing. Situations, um, epoch change all the time. So if you look at those survivors who were kicked out of industrial schools, mother and baby homes, never Magdalene laundries, I might add, in the 50s endured one set of obstacles. Those in the 60s, another. Those in the 70s, another. Those in the 80s, another. Within the church hierarchy, there's been a lessening of severity throughout those decades. I consider myself fortunate that I was kicked out in the 70s. I'm not sure if I would have survived in the 60s being kicked out. And I, I do know women who were um, in the 60s uh, put into a van, taken to O'Connor Street, the van opened, they were thrown out and said, bye, see ya. They had to get on with life, you know? So, yeah, I don't think I'm, a, I think I'm actually a naturally forgiving person. I think the difference is that I now think about why I forgive rather than um, promoting a Catholic doctrine of turning the other cheek. It doesn't matter if somebody blinds you, drop kicks you in the face, you forgive. That's a difference. I think about it now. And that's what the Catholic Church programmed me to do. It did not matter what indignities I endured. Turn the other cheek, Rosemary. Forgive them because they know not. And I'm going, well, sod that for a game of soldiers. I don't do that anymore. I'm likely to bite right back at you if you insult me. You, the, the, the term survivors come up an awful lot. Do you see yourself as a survivor? I see myself as my friend Mary Harney said, a resistor. I don't see myself as a survivor. Um, because for me, I've survived what? Yes, you sort of go, yeah, well, you know, you survived industrial schools, you, you survived mother and baby homes. Actually, it's a lot more than that. I've resisted being dragged into a mindset of hopelessness. And I use that, my resistor voice, speak, you know? I grew up in an Ireland which didn't accept me as Irish. They just didn't. But also my African ident identity was stripped away from me. There were no Africans around me. I didn't have an identity. Um, leaving Ireland was absolutely the best move for me because as I said publicly I wouldn't have survived, I wouldn't have been safe but it didn't mean I was going to fall into the the cabals of the Irish community within the UK either because as far as I was concerned they held the very same views that I just escaped from I was afraid that if I told people I was Irish I would get the no you're not I did get it. On a few occasions, I'd say yes, but, you know, I was born in Ireland. No, really. Really? Really? Where are you from? And I'd say, 
well, I was born in Belfast, raised in Kilkenny. No, 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 where are you really from? And this is a refrain that's still in currency in 21st century Ireland. Ask any um, non-white Irish immigrant, Irish person of colour in Ireland, and that's the one thing they'll always moan about, that they're speaking with a thick Dublin, Cork, Galway, loud accent, and they'll still get the, no, 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 where are you really from? And then the person asking that question is positively offended when you refuse to give your life history, when you refuse. So I've, I avoided Irish people because I, I didn't trust them because I figured that the Irish in Britain had pretty much the same prejudices of the Irish I had um, grown up with. So it wasn't part of my plan for my survival to engage with the Irish in Britain. And yet you say that you kind of reconciled yourself to your Irishness. Yes, it took me a long time. You're listening to The Plastic Podcast's Tales of the Irish Diaspora. Rosemary Addiser is a woman driven by various passions, for justice, for visibility, and for her family. In this last section of our interview, we talk about these passions. And first, we go back to the formation of the Association of Mixed Race Irish. The first time we all met was in 2014, when I had written a submission for the Justice, Equality and... Oh God, what's the other one? Justice Equality. And never mind, it'll come to me. But I'd written a submission uh, for the Dole, and three of us went before that. But as well as that, eight other mixed race Irish um, joined us. And it was the first time a group of 11, 12 of us had actually met, for the first time ever. And there was an incredible sense of connection because for them, it was as momentous and as exhilarating as it was for me. We had never ever been in a group. We'd never met together as a group, as a community. That was, ex that was an extraordinary moment of connection. I won't forget that ever. I won't forget that ever. But that happened after our submission at the door in 2014. And we went from there. Family's very important to you, isn't it? Oh, incredibly so. I didn't have one growing up, so yeah, it's really important. Um, and it's not like, um, you know, I think, just my opinion, most people take their families for granted. They can usually say, that's my bro, that's my sis, that's my mom, my dad, my uncle, my crotchety granddad, my equal, you know, my dreadful grandmother. They have boxes, they have a history. I didn't have any of that. So I created my own family. Um, but it's entirely down to my own family's, um, uh, I don't know, sense of love. Um, not the right word. They're normal, I'm not. And they have understood and forgiven me for so many bad things I've done. And they've allowed me to trust them as I trust them. And trust is a massive issue for any survivor. You know, I know survivors who will say, I have X number of children and none of them talk to me. I've been incredibly blessed. My children do talk to me. 
they do support me. Uh, they're not above giving out to me. They're not above that. This is what families do, you know, you piss them off and they spit right back at you and you go, huh, all right then. I feel an apology coming on. And how hard do I have to grovel? <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, family's very important to me. I, I, I have five beautiful grandchildren who know me. The children in Cork are older. I've got two 17-year-olds, Will, twins. They'll be 18 in January, my sister. I have a 15-year-old granddaughter in Cork. They are stunning. But the important thing for my son and his wife, Joyce, a fabulous woman, is that they know about their granny. I am not the black granny in the closet. They know about me. So they know the history. My daughter and her two babies, they know me. So yeah, family's important. Family's critical. Do you think the future is better for them? Yes, unquestionably. Unquestionably. Because we all have a very, very tight family bond. Um, there's no question, especially today, that the, the obstacles I face growing up in Ireland just don't exist in Ireland today. There, there are some, there are some. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna whitewash or blackwash that. But if I look at the grandchildren, they're like third generation. They are used to having people of so many different ethnicities and languages as part of their social makeup. You know, I was a one-off. It's not the case for them. So they are, they are absorbing um, the hated multiculturalism word as a matter of course. I don't question it. It's, it's just, it just is what it is. And they'd be incredibly surprised to find that one of their little friends has been called a bad name because of a, a skin tone or because of their ethnicity. Absolutely, it's better. There's still a lot of work to be done. You know, let's not get it twisted. There's a lot of work to be done, but the otherness, the um, isolation that I and many others like me grew up, not just in Ireland, but within the UK, um, it's just not there. Um, our children and their children have a confidence in their own identity that just wasn't present when I was in Ireland or when I came to the UK. Definitely her. That's beautiful. And one final question, which is the question I ask um, uh, pretty much every interviewee, um, which is, what does being a member of the Irish diaspora mean for you? It's a, a very friendly, very friendly club. And it, it's inclusive and it doesn't matter what your particular entry level is. So what I love about the Irish in Britain is their many, many charitable work, which are, they don't condescend, but they're there. If you look at the pandemic or, well, the pandemic or in now, you've got so many Irish clubs up and down the country, Leeds, Manchester, Irish, Irish in Britain. And they're out there delivering food parcels, phone calls. Um, it's incredibly inclusive to the most vulnerable 
It won't let any of you slip. By the same token, there's another arm, which is the business arm, which is fighting, which is incredibly impressive. And I like being part of that diaspora. The, I mean, I think it'd be fair to say that until uh, my community arrived on the scene, uh, people of color weren't part of that diaspora. But it has been joyous to see how they have reached out to people of color who are Irish. You know, and you've now got, which is wonderful, you've now got this chapter in America, which is African-American Irish. Who would have thought, given the very fraught history uh, between the Irish and the enslaved African in America, an incredibly fraught history, but they, that's now a thing in America. Um, so I don't feel I'm on my own anymore. You know, I've got this American uh, community who can now begin to trace their links with Ireland with a degree of pride. Um, I remember back in the 90s meeting an African-American I went to New York and he was disgusted with his Irish surname. Disgusted. And sort of more as attacked me. I hate this bloody name. Everybody pokes fun at me. I think it was something like Fitzgerald or something like that. And we spent like three hours with me just talking him through Irish connections, African Irish connections, at the end of which he was a lot calmer. That was over 30 years ago. Now, Irish diaspora includes African-Americans who have an Irish ancestry. That is amazing. You know, and you've got, um, they say there's something like 80 million people globally who will claim an Irish connection. Well, now you've got the African-American contingent. That's going to massively swell, given the, as I said, oft times fraught history. But there is an era and there is a, there is a forgiveness. And, and I do think that we just need to forgive and understand that what happened then happened then. We all have free will, and it's how we choose to use that is within our gift. You've been listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora, with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Rosemary Addison. The Plastic Pedestal was provided by Tommy McLaughlin and Liam Thompson. Music by Jack Devaney. You can find us at www.plasticpodcasts.com Email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. The Plastic Podcasts are sponsored using public funding by Arts Council England.